episode six of the Going for Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. Hey guys, welcome back. The podcast took an extended hiatus during the fall of 2020. Turns out I like chasing animals in the fall a bit more than producing podcasts, and that slowed down my output quite a bit. I had a great fall and tagged two whitetails with my bow, one in Montana and one in Kansas, and also my first antelope in Montana with a rifle. However, despite my best efforts and a few close encounters, I struck out an elk. If you want to hear more about my season or support your fifth favorite podcast by buying a Going for Broke Outdoors t-shirt, check out my blog at www.goingforbrokeoutdoors.com. There's also a link in the video description below. In today's episode, we have our first repeat guest, Ryan Anderson. In this episode, we discuss Ryan's approach to the 2020 season, including his quest to hunt down a mature buck sporting a drop time in his home state of Minnesota. We also discuss his South Dakota mule deer hunt and some late season muzzleloader tactics. Along the way, we dive into how Ryan employs various tactics such as observation sits, shining, trail cameras, and in-season scouting, and how he then puts the intel from all of those sources together to close in on a target animal. Today is February 10th, and now that we're in the depths of winter, I've got more free time on my hands, which means a few things. First, more podcasts. I've got some great guests scheduled for the next few episodes that you're not going to want to miss. If you're enjoying these podcasts and you haven't already subscribed to this channel, go ahead and do that now to ensure you're notified when future episodes are released. Second, winter is my favorite time to go over my gear and evaluate what worked and what didn't during the 2020 season. January and February are the perfect months to attend to the gear issues because the lessons of the last season are still fresh, and if you live in the snow belt like I do, there's not a whole lot else going on right now. One thing I always want to address in the postseason is the elimination of any noisy gear. Over the past several years, I've been a huge fan of Stealth Strips from Stealth Outdoors. If you experience some unwanted noise this fall, check out Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com. There's not a better product on the market for eliminating unwanted noise. Stealth Outdoors manufactures a variety of tree stand silencing equipment specifically designed for the mobile hunter, including climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, and more. Speaking of stealth strips, if you're listening to this podcast and I have less than 500 subscribers, then there's still time to enter the current giveaway. When my YouTube channel hits 500 subscribers, I'm going to give away two prizes. First, a $100 gift card to Cabela's, and the second prize has been donated by Stealth Outdoors and will include a set of stealth strips for climbing sticks, a tree stand kit, and a roll of stealth strips to silence your entire setup. To enter the giveaway, visit the contact page on my website and sign up for my subscriber list. There's a link in the description of this video. Second, go to Stealth Outdoors Facebook or Instagram pages and give them a like and you'll be entered. Getting back to gear issues, another issue I want to address this off-season is my clumsy approach to taking my climbing sticks up the tree with me. I've tried a few different approaches, and I haven't been happy with any of them. This year, I'm going to give a product called Stick Talons a try. Stick Talons are manufactured by Brian Landry of MobileHuntingGear.com and offer a way to securely fasten most popular climbing sticks to a variety of mobile tree stands. Not only do the Stick Talons provide secure climbing stick transport to and from your hunting location, they also aid at the tree setups by keeping climbing sticks organized and quiet on your stand while you're ascending the tree. While climbing, just reach back and pull a stick off the stick talons as you ascend. This seems like a great solution to avoid multiple trips up and down the tree to retrieve my climbing sticks. And I'm looking forward to giving the stick talons a try in 2021. Now, let's get Ryan on the phone and get on with the podcast. 
Hey, Ryan, glad to have you back on the show. How are you doing tonight? Pretty good. Yeah, so I wanted to get you on the phone and kind of recap your season. You had a couple interesting encounters this year and took two nice bucks and a doe, I believe, correct? Yep. Yeah, so why don't we get into what happened with your season and go ahead and start out with your summer scouting in Minnesota and the buck that you were on to there and, and walk me through basically how you discovered that deer, any camera work, any observation sits, and kind of how the season progressed for you and what, what the outcome was there. Sure. It's kind of a, a long story. I feel like uh, there's some value in it as well. So I'm typically pretty long-winded, but I'll try and give you the condensed version. But in our last podcast, I talked about this property where I shot my 2019 buck and I was hunting all the the good looking structure, the islands, the peninsulas, stuff like that. And the buck ended up being in this bedding area, more or less right by my truck, like 250 yards away. And it was to the point where I was so frustrated with that property, I almost quit hunting there. And I had one bedding area that just so happens to be on the public and private line. I've got access to the backside of this public and uh, I decided I was going to camera bomb that bedding area because I knew there was does in there often. So I was like, I'm going to camera bomb it. I put three cameras in there and I was like, if I don't get a, a nice buck, a shooter buck in daylight during rut, I'm done. And I got one. <laughs> one came through one day. He was he spent the night there. He came through an afternoon and then left the next morning. And the funny part was it was during shotgun season and I got the landowner's family member walking past my camera like in between pictures of this deer which was pretty funny so the buck's hiding in there while the guy's hunting in his box standing nearby <laughs> but anyway so i'm like okay i need to put more time into this scouted the stuff by the road long story short that led me to my 2019 kill so this year i took it a step further and uh really paid more attention to that stuff that i'd somewhat been ignoring let me stop you right there real quick. When you say stuff that you you were ignoring, what do you mean specifically? What part of this property were you ignoring? I would say I was mostly ignoring the private just because, for one, it looks like better pheasant ground. And, I mean, I know not to overlook stuff, but it's like I always saw does there. I never once shined a shooter on that part of the property. I ran camera there for years, um, summertime with corn, salt, literally did not have even two-year-olds most of the time like no shooters and i'm just like what is going on with this property so i just figured they were deep in the public well that never panned out then like i say camera bomb that bedding area got the one shooter and then i started picking out observation trees and uh making sure i could see different parts of the property that i had been ignoring and that's when i found that overlooked bedding area with those three bucks that were coming into the beans every day um, in 2019. And I snuck in opening day and killed that 10. So then this year I even took it a step further. I'm like, okay, like this is going to be, this kind of brings me to summertime, right? For whatever reason, this field, I would never see shooters there. Like I knew there was big deer around. I'd see some on the South end of the property in the summer. And even when I killed that buck in 2019, I'd watch that bachelor group go out into those beans in a low spot. And then I would drive by later and shine it once or twice. And I would never see him from the road. They were there all summer and I would never see him. 
well, it just so happens I shine this drop kind in that field. And it made perfect sense that he was using the same bedding. The same bedding area as the buck you shot last year? Yep. And it made perfect sense for him to like swing around the south side, wind in his face, scent check the whole thing, and then feed right in that little corner. And he'd be in the same spot. Like every single time I saw him, probably five times, except for one. He was in the same exact spot in the field to the point where if I saw eyes over there, I knew it was him. So you're talking this summer, you yep. saw him, what, glassing, shining? How, when did you first see this deer? Shining. Yep, I shined him like five times out there. And I'm like, he's coming out of that bedding for sure. It's like, he's got to be. I'm like, oh, this is going to be lights out. I had sets prepped over there for ground sets for multiple wins. I'm like, this is going to be a done deal. Well, I set up some observations watching where he should come out and he never showed. I'd see a few other deer and he never showed. I sat it again and he still didn't show. What time of the year is this when you're sitting these observation stands? This is like, when I was doing those observations, it was like the preceding week before season. Like the, like I know the one, the one day was like the day before season opened. And I was hoping to catch him coming out of there. It's a perfect time to observe. You don't burn a hunt. I was like, if I can catch him coming out of there, it's pretty much going to be game over because I bet he'll be back in there again. And nothing. It's like there wasn't even does coming out of there. So that really threw me off. I'm like, all right, he's either got to be bedding in the private fence line or in the cornfield across the road. I really didn't know what to think. But he was on the south end of the field and all the other bedding was on the north side and I just didn't think it made sense that he would enter the, from the north and then walk all the way to the other end. So it threw me for a loop. Well, then he disappeared and I ended up taking my daughter opening day just because I didn't know where the heck he'd went. And I'd finally decided that, uh, right, I did a third observation in a different spot closer to the farm place. And I seen a bunch of does come out of this thicket where I know they stay. I know it's really good doe bedding. But like I say, I'm not really interested in shooting a doe on private and never really see bucks over there. But I, I kind of had my aha moment that these does are going to lead me to this buck. I need to get a set over there and catch them during rut. And that was going to be my plan. So I went and I scouted all of the private, booted all the deer out of their bedding areas, and uh, even checked this, what ended up being his bedding, but I didn't know it at the time. This little peninsula by the road of dry ground in these cattails. I'd had a camera hung there in the past and nothing. There was a doe that was showing up. She was on a pattern big time. She'd show up every evening. I'd catch her going in and out, which should have been a light bulb for me. Like, hey, this is good doe bedding. You at least should watch it closer. But I had like one buck in a few weeks of running camera there, like one six-pointer. That was it. What time of the year was it when you went in and scouted the private? It was, I just looked it up in my notes. I think it was October 13th. Okay, so this is a month into the season already then. Yeah, so yeah, because we opened mid-September, but I'm like, I need answers. I'm not going to sit back and watch from the sidelines. So I'm just going in and it'll be what it'll be. So I went through the bedding that he ended up using, right? But I didn't know it at the time. And I'm like, okay, there's deer in here. There's beds here, just like I thought I would see but no rubs in there. And I should have been paying closer attention to tracks. That's kind of the one big takeaway is like, I kind of got a little bit complacent. 
And so I went through there. Well, I ended up finding, I went through the dough bedding. I went all over, but I ended up finding right next to the guy's house. Like it never really clicked, but I'm like, this is a phenomenal funnel. Just one of those moments where I'm like, I can't believe I didn't put two and two together. And I ended up putting a camera on an apple tree right there. So that's another bonus. There's an apple tree. I could tell the ground had been worked. There weren't any like real fresh scrapes, but I could tell that they were going to pop up. And uh, I picked out a couple trees for possible sets. And I normally hate running camera by my stance, but for this, I'm like, I know I'm going to get him on here. So I just did it. And I think I let the camera sit there for, was it eight days? And I had him on camera four times in eight days. Three of those times were like a half an hour after dark to like an hour and a half after dark. So I'm like, at that point, I knew he was either in that peninsula bedding or in that bedding area that I camera bombed with those three cameras. How far apart are those two, roughly? Uh, three, 400 yards. Okay, yeah. So you know you're in the ballpark now. Right. And uh, so I'm like, he's coming from one of them too. So I picked out this pine tree and I forget the exact yardage. It's like 65, 70 yards from the guy's shop. And one of those, like we call it, dating the fat chick spots where you just feel stupid. Things almost in his yard. So it's like, I didn't want to lop all the limbs off of one side of it. So I ended up setting my stand like seven feet up, seven feet tops to the platform. And I was like, I'll just shoot him when he comes in to check those scrapes, because I know we will, or like check for apples. I was like, there's a lot of deer on camera. I even had one windy day where a bunch of deer showed up checking for apples that had dropped. I was like, I'll shoot him when he gets there. And if he doesn't stop or whatever, I'll just have to figure it out. Yeah, so let's stop right there real quick. You had a theory about the apple tree in the windy days. And I think it's a good point to mention that. That was interesting. Yeah. Um, now, I'm not going to guarantee this, but it seemed a little bit that they knew on a windy day that apples were going to drop or that there should be more there because I had a few I had a few branches trigger some pictures that day. So I knew it was windy without even have to look at historical weather and uh, like pictures that evening were like maybe if I got a one daylight picture of a doe right at prime time well I had like three different deer come in that day so that was just something I, I noticed that it's like well maybe maybe they realize on those really windy days there's some extra food there yeah and one other thing I wanted to mention and you brought this up was that it was like a type of a crab apple tree and one there wasn't any or, or many other apple trees in the area and two you said those apples held on real late into the season, so having a windy day would jar some of those fruit loose that otherwise wouldn't you know, be off the tree, right? Yeah. When I was there in December, I want to say it was mid-December, there was still 40 or 50 of them hanging on, and they looked rotten. So that was an interesting thing to uh, that might help somebody out if you got apple trees and maybe bedding's a little ways away or you need that little extra extra bit of uh, confidence that they might show up on a certain day a windy day might be it going back to my set it was not a comfortable set to hunt out of but i my aunt's boyfriend years ago told me like 10 years ago he said all i can tell you is if you back into a pine tree they will never see you he goes because he'd stand on the ground cut a few branches out and back in there and said he had deer walking by just like brushing up against the branches almost 
And I never forgot about that. So I'm like, all right, let's put it to the test. And I put my stand facing, facing the apple tree. And the day, let's see, my first hunt was the 21st. So I walked through everything, including his bedding on the 13th. The 21st was my first hunt there ever. And it was early. I hadn't seen any deer, but it was like an hour and 15 minutes, maybe even an hour and a half before dark. I hear a rustle in the cattails out on that peninsula. And sure enough, it's him. I couldn't believe it. He starts working around the slough. I'm like, this is perfect. Like, I'm going to get a shot for sure. But here he comes. Well, and nothing, and nothing, and nothing. And I never saw him again the rest of the night. He either headed across the wide open to that camera bomb bedding area, or he stayed in those trees. Your guess is as good as mine, but I, I think he stayed in those trees. You actually saw him near the bedding or come out of that bedding, though? You got a good visual on him? Yeah, he walked right by. So there's an old toppled over box stand. I got an old camera that has a screw that you run through the back of the camera. And I had it screwed onto the leg of that fallen over box stand. And he walked right past it. Like that same spot that I was like, oh, nothing here. This ain't worth hunting. And I, I mean, I never forgot about it. Obviously, I went and scouted it again. I knew it had potential. But just the fact that, you know, I don't know if that was three or four years ago. I ran that camera there and it was like, oh, nothing here. So you can't write a spot off that fast. You know, that's another lesson that I learned. It's just like, oh, just because there's nothing there now. That doesn't mean there's nothing there next week, next year, or whatever. And let me stop you there one second, because this is the 21st. You walk through that bedding area that you just saw him come out of on the 13th, so eight days ago. What kind of buck sign did you see in that bedding area on the peninsula? None. Right, and I think that's a really important point. If a bedding area has the ingredients to be a buck bedding area, it doesn't necessarily have to have buck sign. I mean, that's a bonus. But I think one of the things I did, and I think one of the things maybe you did too, I think we've talked about this early on when you're, you're reading the hunting beast and the playbook to find these bedding areas, like one of the things that's the golden rule, you need a rub in the bed or near the bed. So here's an example of what's a mature buck and you're in the bedding area uh, a week ago. So if there's hot sign, it should be in there and there's nothing in there. Yep. Oh, there was beds there. Like I, my thought presses process was yeah there's deer here i knew there was going to be deer here there was beds with hair in them but it's like i didn't have that sign that said this is where he is right and that's why tracks are so important and i dropped the ball on that it is hard to find tracks and crp in grassier areas but it can be done but i i wasn't i was looking for rubs mainly rubs um and bed size and stuff like that and it's it's just it's tough to do, especially as usual. I was in a little bit of a hurry, but I didn't tromp through. There was a couple little patches out in the cattails. I didn't tromp through those just because I felt like I didn't want to totally blow everything out of there. It was bad enough the way it was. But yeah, the that was the one thing that surprised me when he did walk out of there was I'm like, man, there was nothing there. So yeah, anyway, I don't know if he uh, held up in those trees or if he went to that other bedding area or what. But the one thing I will mention is I know for sure on the, I think every time I observed, I could see the edge of those trees, but not in them. So on those days when 
oh, I'm like, oh, where is he at? He, he's on the neighbors. He's got to be in the neighbors. He maybe was 10 or 20 yards from view. And it just so happens that I couldn't see him. So that was my first hunt. I saw him and I passed several does. I had some deer show up later. And uh, that that spot, even though it's right next to the guy's house, I should mention he doesn't have a dog and he's never outside. Good information for sure. If he, if he's outside, like he mows a little bit, but not much. And if he's outside, he walks from his house to his shop and he tinkers around in his shop and then he goes back to his house. That's it. It's funny because for the last how many years, like I started hunting here in 2014 and there have been many times where I drive in his driveway and like say there's snow on the ground and then I go out into all that remote stuff. I'm walking like checking for big buck tracks and checking for sign and this and that. And it's like, man, there's more tracks on his driveway than anywhere else. Well, it's like everything else was wet and it's like I kind of rode off that immediate area because of his house but it turns out it's the best spot out there it's one of the best spots i'd ever hunted i had daylight pictures of does on that camera just about every day for a couple weeks straight and that is not something that happens to me we just don't have the densities around here don't be smarter than the sign right is that the lesson here right yeah and you really do have to don't assume anything it's like oh they're not going to be here are you sure you know, or they are going to be here. Are you sure? You got to figure it out some way, whether it's observing or busting bedding in season, trail cameras, whatever. You have to figure it out. Don't assume. So anyway, I leave my stand. So obviously I see that buck and I'm like, okay, I'm leaving my, I got a lone wolf that I hunt out of primarily. I'm like, I'm obviously coming back here. So I'm leaving it. And uh, the interesting part about that set is I would hunt it with a northwest or a southeast wind. If it was southeast, I could shoot them. The trail fork around me, I should mention that. So from the apple tree, they fork around me on both sides. And if he comes on my left side with a southeast wind, I can shoot him before he gets my wind. Well, if a doe or a little buck comes, I'm screwed. If he comes on the other side with a northwest, it's kind of the same thing. Just with the angle of the trail, I should be able to get him, even though it's going to be an extremely close encounter because my stand is so low, but it was one of those deals where it's like, this is where I got to be. This is the only spot where I can cover everything. And that's just how I hunt. I gamble. I would way rather get busted or put myself in a tough position than be like, well, this is the safe bet. And then watch him take a trail. that takes him 55 yards away. Nope. I'm going to roll the dice every time. Yeah. If you got a good reason to, believe he's going to be there and especially it sounds like your area from what we've talked about i mean this particular area you're talking about seeing several does but you're in a pretty low density area so you know some of the areas i hunted in michigan you might have 5 10 15 does a night i don't think you're dealing with that problem to that extent so i think it's a lot you can gamble more you're a lot less likely to get busted by those subordinate deer right and i mean there this particular property it's kind of like hot spots like you'll have a certain square like a square mile or a certain chunk of river bottom where you might see you know a dozen does in a hunt but in general yeah it's a lot of single digit stuff around here but anyway so my second hunt there i had passed some does and i was going to tag one at one point but i decided not with him around you remember the date of the second hunt? The second hunt was the 25th. Okay, so four days after your first hunt. 
Yep. And I know win-based betting is a big deal. So I'm looking at my journal right now on the 21st. It was a north wind and that buck was in the peninsula. And then on the 25th, it was a northwest wind, which a north wind is not a good wind for that bedding. It's basically blowing from the road through the cattails to him. That's what he's winding. So if you think, oh, I can only hunt this peninsula with the wind blowing down it, well, not necessarily. If he feels safe there, he'll bed there. So 25th, I did not see him. I did see some does. Um, northwest wind, he wasn't there. And I can see really good. I, if he was there, I would have seen him get up. And then the 29th, which is my birthday, I, I thought the stars had aligned and I was going to get him. That was a southeast wind, and he ended up getting up with a doe that time. And they hung out on the peninsula for a while. Again, it was really early, like at least an hour before dark. And uh, I'm like, oh, great. She went to the east. He's going to follow her. So I tried calling while he was within earshot. And he's like roughly like 200 yards from me. And he heard me, and he looked my way, but he wouldn't come. Well, then he finally comes around the edge of the slough, just like he did last time, and did the same thing, disappeared for uh, half an hour at least. Well, then I finally caught a glimpse of him. There's a bunch of junk in the farmyard, and I caught him going in between, like, a boat and an old RV. <laughs> How far away is he at that point? Uh, probably, like, 80 yards. Oh, so he's getting close. Yeah, but he's heading towards the open, like, towards the edge of the trees that I could see from my observations. Well, then he disappears again. And at this point, he's like maybe 50 yards from the dude's house. And he hangs out there and he's disappeared. I'm like, but I can see around the other side. Like if he kept going to the alfalfa, I would be able to see him out in the open again. And nothing, 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 nothing. Well, it's starting to get dark. And now I got some more deer. I had, at one point I had a fork buck or like a little six pointer grunting, walking after a doe within like 30 yards of me shortly after i just saw him and i'm like oh this will bring him in for sure like this is it here he comes here he comes nothing and he would just stay over there and it was fair it was really quiet really still at this point and i know he could have heard those grunts nothing he stayed over there well it's getting to the point where i'm starting to lose light and all of a sudden i see a deer leg pop out under this tree i'm like oh here he comes this is him no it was a doe but behind her I see him and he's coming right for me. He's heading right around that boat or heading for the boat. And uh, then he does the same old disappearing act and I'm losing light. And my wind at this point is dead still. Like you drop a milkweed, it basically goes straight down. And I'm like, this is not good. I work a dairy, in a dairy barn. I smell, I didn't shower, nothing. <laughs> my, I do zero scent control. I'm like, this is not good if my scent's pooling. And because the trail comes, the trails come like the one's probably eight yards and the other one is literally like four yards, just about up against the tree. Well, finally a deer comes and commits and I'm like, oh, here we go. This is it. And it was a doe. She has a fawn behind her. They take the fork on my right side and I'm just praying, please don't bust me. Please don't bust me. Right. And, and they walk around me. They don't even look. They were within... 10, 15 feet of me at one point, walk right by me, went pretty much straight behind me. So they're covering roughly 180 degrees and they didn't bust. 
It really was your birthday. Yeah. They didn't bust. I'm like, oh, thank God. I'm like, now hurry up. I'm losing light, Buck. And here comes another deer, another doe. So then I'm let down again. Well, she takes the same path. I'm like, okay, at least I know I'm good. And then she leaves. Well, then here comes another deer. And I see horns this time. Oh, this is him. No, it was a little buck. But it just so happens that he was following that little buck. So they come up to the apple tree. The buck turns broadside. The big one comes around, turns broadside. Oh, wait. So the big one came in behind the little, the first one, the little one? Yeah. So, so okay. out of, what was it, a doe and a fawn, another doe, that's three. So out of five deer, he was the last one. That's like sounds right. their MO. Yeah. Anybody that hunts big bucks knows that they always take up. They're the caboose every time. And uh, they, they send the other deer to go find danger for him. Yeah. So he walks out. He's watching the does walk off, and he turns broadside. I draw. I start settling my pin, and I, my, the biggest problem I have is my peep get blurry. I hear people say, oh, I'm losing light on my pins. I never have that problem. I just have problems with my peep. And I took, I was thought about shooting, but I took a second to aim away into a patch of snow because he was standing in a big, big brown spot just to make sure I was seeing what I thought I was seeing. And when I did that, he turned and faced away, which I was almost like, okay, good. I didn't really, I wasn't really comfortable with that shot in the first place. How far away is he right now? Like 18 yards. Oh, so he's close. Yeah. Well within range. Like if, if I would have had either more time or some broad daylight so I could have seen better, it would have been lights out. He was standing there perfect. Like you couldn't place him better. So then him and the little buck are milling around, uh, nosing the branches and scraping a little bit. And then he ends up coming towards me and going on my left side. So then I start panicking because I'm like, okay, he's going to catch my wind for sure. All the other deer went to your right side, correct? Yeah, they all went to my right and he takes the left fork. So I'm thinking I'm screwed. I'm thinking before he even gets to me, he's going to catch a whiff of me and just turn inside out. So I've got my feet, I'm a right-handed shooter. I've got my feet positioned so I can shoot the right trail and twist to shoot the left trail. Now keep in mind, I'm seven feet up. He is literally five yards in front of me. I'm seven feet up. He's freaking huge. He's the drop time <laughs> that I've been obsessing over. And I'm pretty sure he's going to bust me. So my heart's going a million miles an hour. And for whatever reason, he takes a hard right and goes further to my left and turns straight away. And that's when I seen the drop time. I'm like, this is my chance to draw. So I draw, he kind of angles around behind me and I'm running out of twist and I had to stop him. And like I say, the shooting light, I could have used a little more light, but I stopped him. And when, when he looked, he, he didn't go, Oh, what was that? It was a, an, Oh shit type of a look. <laughs> and like I say, I was, with everything all rolled together, I just rushed my shot, and at the, I didn't know it at the time. I thought I'd smoked him, and he was going to go down, but I shot. I heard the arrow hit him. He took off, when he peels around the backside of my tree, so I can't see nothing. I got pine tree in my face, and I hear him run around the slough to the north, hugging the slough edge, and I hear nothing for about a minute, and then I thought I heard a crash, and I'm like, oh, my God, I just got him. And I freaked out. I'm like, I got to go home. I need help anyways. I'll go get dad and flashlights and whatever. And uh, 
to make a really long story short, we followed him for probably, oh, I forget what it was, 400 yards that night, and we lost blood. It ended up snowing a little bit, and or no, it didn't snow a little bit. We already had a little bit of snow, but it warmed up the next day, and I called a tracking dog. And when we got there, I had to work. And when we got there the next day, I couldn't even find my boot tracks. That's how much snow had melted. And the dog got on his trail, went right to where we lost blood, and we never advanced any farther than that. Oh, man. Yeah. So that was a heartbreaker. That was a heartbreaker for sure. And interestingly, like we, we talked about the lack of buck sign in his bedding. I combed every inch of that and I saw between trail camera, I saw multiple different bucks on stand and had, I don't know, three or four different two-year-olds, I suppose, on camera. And in his bedding, there's no rubs. In his staging where the other bucks are walking through there every day, one little rub and like a broom handle. That's it. Hmm. No scrapes, one rub but it's a lights out spot, right? I shouldn't say no scrapes. There's scrapes on the apple tree, lots of scrapes on the apple tree. But other than that, no scrapes like on next to any of the trails, no scrape lines, no rub lines, no nothing, one little rub. And then I do see anytime I find an apple tree, which I only know of a few, it seems like there are always rubs and scrapes by them. Yeah, same. Apple tree is one of the best trees, I think, for finding scrapes. I don't know right. if it's just the way the branches are generally like perfect height for a scrape and there's so many branches, it provides a lot of opportunity or what, but it seems like an apple tree in the right type of area to, you know, invite scrapes. They're always there. Right. You did find out uh, later that this buck was still alive, right? Tell me yeah. about that a little bit. Yep. I, I ended up uh, talking to the neighbors and uh, I told them, well, I just wanted them like, hey, watch for crows, or if you're out and, you know, you see uh, birds flying or you come up on a dead deer or whatever, I was like, let me know. I told him the deer I shot, and <laughs> he was a little disappointed because that was the buck he was chasing too, you know, <laughs> so right. he wasn't real excited about it, but uh, he ended up getting a picture of it two days later, and it had some dried blood on its side, and I don't know if I went just over or just under the spine, um, you and I talked about this the other day, but I did have one speck or one patch of blood that had bubbles in it. Even the dog tracker was like, yeah, it looks like bubbles to me. And I was like, okay, we're going to find him. He's dead. We're going to find him. And, uh, no, he's still alive. I have him on camera. I actually got to go pull that camera yet, but I think, uh, I know he made it through shotgun season. So a month later, he was still alive and looked perfectly healthy on camera so so the story is still an open-ended book it hasn't all been written yet and uh the odd thing was i got him on camera two days after i shot him at the apple tree where i shot him yeah that's crazy it'll be interesting to see uh assuming and hopefully he did make it through the last bit of the, the muzzleloader bow season there if he did make it if you'll be inhabiting the same areas this year and be on the same kind of patterns or if that'll wise them up or, or what. So it'll be interesting. We'll have to, we'll have to get you on again uh, after, after next season. 
right or maybe i'll maybe i'll be too sad and won't want to <laughs> or or maybe it'll be a, a story of success who knows <laughs> yeah i think uh i don't know he seemed to really like that area i mean i hunted it three times and i, I seen him there twice so now it's the it's the question of it, he as always it's a really hard spot to hunt like i can't it's going to be hard to hunt with the northwest wind like closer to his bedding i don't have a lot of faith in the apple tree spot just because he didn't he wasn't making it there in in good daylight you know i need to be closer to his bedding and i can hunt him at the mouth of that peninsula but it's ground only and if i tried to get in a tree i'd be i'd have some does get downwind of me or something it's just too the traffic through there is just too willy-nilly and uh, it would be gambling that's for sure so i think i have to i know for sure a southeast wind would work perfect it would be in his favor but it's still gonna be i don't know i'm thinking what i'm gonna have to do is haul in a little bit of extra like a stump or a bigger branch or cut one i'll probably end up cutting a limb or two in the summertime or this spring probably like june something like that may or june and if you cut a branch in the summer, the leaves will stay on throughout fall and winter. And that's what I'll probably end up doing is shoving a couple in my blind. And that way, if it's uh, October or something, it's really hard to blend into dogwood only uh, without leaves. Anytime you got that homogenous cover like that, they see if you're in bedding like that, they know every leaf and twig of everything. And if they think they see something, I mean... I've been in lots of stare downs and they're never fun. Right. So I think a little bit, if I'll, I think all I got to do is clip a couple limbs, set those in there in strategic spots, and that'll be a nice brown blob to break me up. Those are, those are good tips too, right? If the setup you had, I mean, it worked, you gotta, you gotta narrow off, but if you're not confident in it and the, the area you are a little more confident is ground only that's the time to, to make those adjustments is, you know, like you said, May, June, get that in there, get that prepped and then, then leave it alone. Cause if he is in there again and on that same pattern, then you're already set up and ready to go. Right. And I could hunt the apple tree and just, uh, I mean, I can see decent, but while I was sitting there, the one hunt, I looked over and there's a monster. I don't know if it's a cottonwood. It's almost gotta be a cottonwood right by his shop. And I think I can climb sky high in that thing park my car right next to it and observe from there and i can see everything from there i can see way like way out into the public so that's going to be that's going to be the new observation spot i think it's like you don't have to worry about scent you don't have to worry about bumping deer you don't have to worry about nothing and it sounds like the observation uh area that you were sitting this year in summer 2020 was maybe just off the edge of where you might have been able to see him so knowing where he's betting now and, and what he was doing to adjust that observation sit for this season or, or future seasons, right? If that buck's not there, maybe another good one is right. that uh, puts you in the game right. every time now. Well, and yeah, from that big cottonwood, I can see all the CRP, like if anything leaves that, that camera bombing bedding area, I can see that really well. Um, some of the other doe bedding that I went through on the private, like I, it's, it's a really, really good observation spot. I just got to talk him into I, there's no way I'd get any <laughs> any uh, climbing stick straps around that. Even rope, you'd need like 10 or 12 feet of rope to get around it probably, or more than that. 
So I don't know if I'll just be like, hey, you mind if I take a drill bit and drill some thick rebar steps into this tree so I don't fall out of it and die? Oh, yeah, especially cottonwood. The bark's so thick, it's hard to get a regular screw in step. Right, that's the problem. You can't even use tree steps with them, really. So I don't know. I'll figure something out. No doubt. Well, let's just kind of recap there because that's a, that's a great story with uh, not necessarily the ideal ending, of course. But lots to take away. So, I mean, summer scouting, right? That's important. You had some observations that's mixed in there. When you weren't seeing what you wanted to see, you went in mid-season, right? You said October 13th, busted through the bedding area, trying to find out what you need to find out. And then not that long after, you know, you have your first sighting. Right. And it's not so much that, like, I found what I needed to see in the bedding, it's just the fact that that apple tree was there and it was a funnel that I didn't realize was there. And it was in the right location where it's like, I'm in, it's an observation spot where I'm in the game too. And, you know, and it was a great rut funnel. So it was like the fact that I was out there, I mean, I've parked my car within a hundred yards of that dozens of times and it just never, it never clicked. And uh, I never bumped any deer there because every time I was hunting, deep into the cover and I'd walk back to my car they were already long gone they were out in the crop fields and stuff and there was nothing there so yeah just the fact that I took the initiative to it's like okay I need answers it's mid-season that's what you got to do because if you wait till spring every year it's a slow process the way it is well and that's the thing you you know from from shining and and maybe from the observations or maybe not it sounds like just from shining but you, you knew that buck was in that area and your trail camera you, you're getting him on camera would you say hour after dark so you know he's close he's got to be in there somewhere you got to go find him right and see the trail camera really was the key to that because i had just made up my mind i'm like he's coming off of the neighbors he has to be i was like i know he's not in the bedding that my 2019 buck was in i know he's not in there and i'm like it doesn't make sense for him to be anywhere else i would have seen him if he would have came out here or there or whatever and it just so happens the one spot that i couldn't see was where he was but yeah so it's like you really got to use i knew i knew that camera was going to be a phenomenal camera spot but i i wasn't i knew i was going to get him on camera i was just expecting some middle of the night type stuff or a few hours after dark but uh that's why i said it there because i knew I was like, if he's close, like I'll get him. Well, and that's a critical piece of information, right? Because you know what you said, there's two bedding areas 400 yards apart. You get that picture an hour after dark, you know he's in one of those two bedding areas at that point. Right, right. Yeah. That was basically the only trail left that he could have come to that alfalfa on. Like I had everything else checked off the list. That was like the last trail. So it's like, I'm putting the camera here because it's like, that way I know, you know. Well, I mean, that's the one of the foundations of mobile hunting, right? You keep moving until you find them. And we've talked about this some, and I think it's important to mention again. I've probably mentioned it a bunch of times now, but I think it's important, so I'm going to keep mentioning it. Uh, mobile hunting is great because you cross off these unproductive spots. You know, you don't see anything, you move on. You don't see anything, you move on. Then you see one. I think a lot of guys automatically assume if you don't kill them that night, it's over. That's one of the mistakes I made early on. And maybe you don't hunt that exact tree again, but sometimes you do. 
I think it's worth a second, third, sometimes even a fourth sit. I mean, it depends on your access and if you got winded and, and a bunch of other factors. But if you get in and out clean and you had an observation but not a shot, definitely think it's worth getting back there at least once more. Right, right. And, I mean, this spot, being so close to the farmer's house, it's a little bit of a unique situation. Like, I think I would have to hunt the crap out of that to burn it out or, like, have does, like, keep going downwind to me. It's just one of those really special spots that you don't happen upon that often and uh, has a lot of u- unique advantages to it being that close to the farm like that. Not to mention it only takes you 30 seconds to walk to your stand. That never hurts. Yeah, those those are few and far between, that's for sure. <laughs> Better than plowing miles of cattails, right? Yeah. Well, that's what I did out on that property for years. Way the heck back there brought my dad back there and he's like what are you gonna do if you get one back here figure it out when the time comes right make sure it's big yeah well let's move on to south dakota so this is the first time you had a a rifle tag in south dakota how many years five or six years it was more than that i think the last time i was there was 2012 probably with a rifle but i've been there every two three years of the bull and for people that don't know you actually lived in south dakota for a while correct Yep, I lived in Sioux Falls for pretty close to five years. So had some had a real good time out there. I loved South Dakota, but I had to move back to Minnesota for work. But I'm partial to South Dakota too. Actually, uh, 2019, I shot my my personal best in South Dakota, so I'm a fan. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it's got some good opportunity for sure. So yeah, we uh, me and my buddies went out there. Uh, I'm in my upper 30s. Well, we're all in our upper 30s just buddies from high school that that's our annual trip. They've been, go, they've been going out there rifle hunting the whole time. And I kind of like broke off of the crew and did some bow hunting. But so I went back my, I was the only one with any deer tag. And I talked about it in the last podcast that I had a very long trek ahead of me. And oddly that got even longer than expected because there was a closed gate when I got there in the morning that added like a mile to my walk. I was on deer right off the bat, went through a lot of nasty country to get back there and seen some does right away, a smaller muley pushing a doe around and uh, ended up sneaking right on top of him to bow range just for fun because he ended up right in front of me. And then uh, basically cleared these two draws and was going up over the next ridge and I just decided to stop and glass behind me one last time and all of a sudden, here runs this buck. And I, I'm i like, oh, man, do I shoot or not? He's just the size I didn't want to see. He's like a real nice buck, but is he big enough to haul miles by myself? Right. Pack him out for miles. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to let him go. <laughs> just when I decided that, a little bit bigger one ran in. <laughs> and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And uh, I was aiming at him, and I yelled at him, hey. I don't know if he was like 100 yards, 90 to 100 yards, something like that. And I just yelled at him. And he stopped and he looked at me. And I'm like, oh, man, he's pretty wide. And I ended up pulling the trigger. And when I first walked up on him, I thought I made a horrible mistake. And uh, I ended up spining him, so I had to finish him off. But when he when he was kind of struggling a little bit, he looked like a stud two-year-old for a second. And I thought, oh, no. Oh, like, no. What did, yeah, what did I do? And uh, after I got a good look at him, I'm like, okay, he's big enough, I'm happy with him. But it was, uh, I'm going to forget the actual numbers. It was like three, 
think it was 3.1 miles as the crow flies and my actual pack out was 4.02 and i i almost died you take the whole deer in one uh one go yeah oh yeah that's a long ways dude my pack was after i got home i weighed everything it was 88 pounds yeah that's, that's a healthy load that's that's a lot i mean i'm five nine like 175 but i should be like 155 (laughs) (laughs) so i'm not that big of a guy and uh the whole plan was was, i'll take most of it and then once it gets to be too much i'll drop half of it and come back for for it the next day and it just got to the point where it's like oh man i'm almost out of here i just i'm just gonna keep going and i did but the funny part was the first break that i took i don't know if i made it like three four hundred yards sat down and uh took a break and when i stood up i turned around and on the next ridge closer to the truck there's these two guys glassing me and they could see like the big rack on the back of my pack and you could just tell in their body language like that a-hole beat us out here Like I felt, I was smiling, but I was like, "Man, I've had that happen to me before." Right, sucks. <laughs> I felt, I felt bad. And as soon as I turned around and they saw that, I saw them. They just turned and put their head down and walked away. Took the wind right out of their sails. Yeah. but it took me <laughs> took took six hours to get them out myself. I took a lot of breaks. Holy cow! Yeah, and I was real glad to see the truck. Yeah, well, I want to go back to one thing, and, and just so people don't think you're some sort of arrogant big rack hunter so one shooting nothing wrong with shooting a two-year-old right nope two you've shot how many mule deer three four five now three that's my third mule deer buck okay and you've got two really nice ones already so i think when when you explain that story what you're trying to say is you went out there hoping to shoot your biggest mule deer ever correct I shot, yeah, my 2010 muley was 147, and I told my crew, like, I'm not shooting that back here. Like, I'm not. It's way too far. It's way too much work. Like, this is a nightmare to get them out. It's, like, giant or nothing. Well, then I shot a, a, just a big one. It's actually two inches smaller. He's 145. Which is a great mule deer. Right. Real yeah. nice deer. I mean, no, no regrets. I mean, I I have a lot of pride in the fact that I packed him that far myself and everything, but I mean, would I shoot him again? Probably not, especially since I just started. Like, I had him down at like 8.30 in the morning. Like, my hunt just started. So I never got to see, um, I'd never been back that far into that property before. So I never really got to see what else was there. Like, I think there truly is some freak nasties in there, some Cabela's type 200 plus inch stuff. And uh, I don't know. It's tough. I thought he was a little bit bigger than I was, than he was, you know, you know how that goes. You think he's an inch wider and each time is an inch longer and a little bit more mass. I mean, yeah, right. And then that's a 160 deer. Right. And like I say, I am happy with him. So I don't want to, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with shooting two year olds. I got a ton of them. Right. Same here. Shot my share for sure. Yep. Well, cool. No, that sounds like a fun hunt. And then uh, how'd the rest of your crew go? You guys had a pretty good year, didn't you? Yeah, we did. We had, uh, well, let's see, what was there? Three, five, five of us. I was the only one without a doe tag, so I was tagged out on, was that day two? Yeah, day two I went back there. So then I just tagged along with the other guys, and uh, yeah, we filled out. We got, everybody got a buck, and, a, and the other guys all got their does. 
and they all had white tail tags and the one was a really nice the biggest one we've ever got out there the biggest white tail i think he scored 146 but he's one of them when when you see him on the hoof he looks more like a 160s a little bit a lot of mass and even had a drop tine like a three inch drop tine oh nice and uh yeah 10 pointer real good mass just his tines weren't the longest but was that all public land out there yep all public so We've talked about this a little bit before, but traveling out of state, obviously you guys had a lot of success. What uh, if you could give me like the top two or three things? What are you looking for, and why do you guys think you did as well as you did? Um, it's mostly just legwork. When I was with my buddy Gabe, I want to say his pack out was two point seven miles, right around. I think the walk itself was a tad over three. That wasn't so bad. We each had half a deer. That was like a dream. Right. And, and, uh, but that, I mean, there again, yeah, I think it was right around that three mile range that we packed that one out. So you can't, uh, you can't expect to walk a half a mile or a mile in and, uh, see big five by five muleys and stuff like that. Um, we didn't really see that much pressure. I see, tons of comments online especially from the residents that just hate non-residents they're oh there's all i saw is trucks and people everywhere that's not what i see when i'm out there but uh yeah you got to get out of the truck you got to go hoof some hills and put the work in i don't remember if i said it on the last podcast but the way the way to do it is you put a you get a meat pack forget about a cart or anything like that or a sled get a pack and you put supplies in it for all day and you go hunt, and if you go out into a spot and it sucks and you want to go back to the truck, fine. But once you get out into some good stuff, you don't go back to the truck. You don't walk two and a half miles back to the truck to grab a sandwich. Bring all that with you, and if you kill a deer, you got everything you need. Cut them up, debone them completely. Can't take bones back anyways across state lines. And uh, throw them in the pack and go back to the truck. Now that mirror is mirrors my experience in uh, Montana a lot so I had a couple friends come out this year and I was already tagged out I got a, a white tail in September with the bow but I wanted to show them around they actually came out last year too and that's the same thing so we go to some more remote areas we take packs take your knives take your water take your food take everything and I'm curious and maybe you don't have enough experience or it sounds like you tagged out early in the morning the area we hunted this year, we saw deer on their feet the entire length of the day. I mean, from sun up to sundown. Yeah, muleys especially. Yeah. Running whitetails, yeah. Western hunting is very different. You know, we talked about it on the phone the other day, how the running whitetails out there, they'll run just full speed chasing does. And the muleys are on their feet. Like, there's no... I had told a buddy one time, I'm like, yeah, if you're hunting muleys, just just because it's 8 o'clock, don't think that your hunt is over. It's like they're on their feet a lot. Like they don't bed down until like an hour or two after after daybreak. Like that's just how they are. You want to hear a funny story? Sure do. That buddy was me this year, and you said, if you don't see him by 8 o'clock, keep waiting. And <laughs> In early September, I missed like a 150s, 160s mule deer on a bow hunt, and <laughs> And part of the reason I waited as long as I did was because you told me, oh, if you don't see him by eight, keep waiting. <laughs> I couldn't remember who the, who I told that to. 
Yeah, that was me. That was that, that was good advice. You should have told me to shoot better too. <laughs> well, that's just a given. Yeah. Hey, I'm in no position to tell someone to shoot better. So I only give advice where I see fit and that's not I'm not a crack shot with my bow when it comes to long range or anything like that. I like them in close. Mine was a little over seven yards, so I have an excuse. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, no, it sounds like a, a great hunt. And if I'll tell anybody that'll listen, if you can get out west to hunt, it is totally different. I mean, you got to put in the work, of course. But if you do your due diligence, find some good units, find some decent-looking public land, and you're willing to, to burn up the boots, you can definitely have a great hunt. Yep. I mean, all it really takes is uh, one isolated patch of cover way back in there. Um, the, the, or especially the one where Gabe got his, like the neighboring land, looks pretty good. He's got some wooded draws and stuff like that, and most of the public is pretty crappy. It's pretty open, just some rolling hills and really not much there. But way in the back, there's a corner of it where one of those... Uh, wooded drainages goes on to the public and that's right where we shot them and i actually went in there oh, that was the first day i went in there and i saw three whitetail bucks and uh i don't know if one of them was the same one that gabe shot or not but yeah there was three whitetail bucks and i seen a big muley that i made a play on but i lost light and then uh but right before we shot gabe's buck we had a big muley come up actually into bow range we heard this weird noise and he was rubbing a tree down below us came right up right up next to us oh nice pretty similar like a 140 inch buck something like that but so that's what you got to do you gotta you gotta find that remote stuff and then uh, just keep going i think the first day i walked 13 miles yeah so you're getting after it right and then the next day i packed a deer out four miles so it's not uh it's not a leisurely hunt. I mean, you can do that if you want. You could go out there, and if you're just happy with a smaller buck, yeah, there's plenty of stuff that that's not. You don't have to go real remote. But. Yeah, it's funny you said that. One of the guys that came out, this was his first time ever hunting out west, and it's uh, a friend of my friend, and he kept saying, "Man, I thought this was going to be physical, but I can't believe because we we walked, you know, six, seven, ten miles every day for three days." So, and he's a He's a bigger guy. He's my size, probably 250, and and he was he was feeling it. And it's a little different than sitting in the box blind in Michigan. Right, right. But I will say you can find them on other properties because where my buddy Griff shot his drop tine, I don't think that I think the deepest that property is is maybe a mile and a half, and a lot of it's a mile. But there's a sunflower field that uh, was full of deer, and that was. That was the active food source for that property. And they they seen him run down in there. They were out there hunting and went back to the truck. And while they were sitting there talking, they seen this nice buck run down in there. And they're like, dang it, we were just out there. <laughs> they went right back out there after him and ended up getting him. They must have missed the part where you said, don't go back to the truck for a sandwich. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, after that hunt, uh, what was next for you? Shotgun season? Yeah, uh, shotgun season was actually before South Dakota. I had my uh, nephews home from Washington, and uh, one of them's 15. He got his first buck at uh, Oscar's Grove, my good my good rut grove for bow hunting. 
it's pretty much lights out for a yearling buck or if somebody wants a first buck that's the place to go and uh first sit there you got a it's actually 11 pointer i think uh probably like a smaller two-year-old oh nice nice little awesome buck for a first buck heck yeah and uh made a hundred yard shot that was pretty cool and then uh me and his brother Maddox, we had a little bit rougher time. We had a few opportunities, but they slipped through our fingers. And uh, yeah, it was it was a great time, but we we just caught some bad luck. Where you know how that goes. Oh yeah, it can just as easily work for you or against you, whether it's good or bad luck. And uh, we just the the one that that was the toughest was we walked all the way across this plowed field. And just when we were coming up to the cover, this buck runs up and stands on the railroad tracks. And I had told Maddox, like, you know, try and not use your sling. You know, keep your gun in your hands just in case something happens. Well, Maddox needed, like, another second to shoot. And he told me, he's like, I had my gun in my hands the whole walk across the field. And then right before we got there, he's like, I had, my arms got tired, so I put it on my shoulder. Oh, no. Yeah. And I dropped the ball. I should. I should, I wasn't expecting to see any deer right there. And uh, he was in a tiny little low spot, and we couldn't see him. And all of a sudden, he popped up, and there he was, like 60 yards. And I turned around, and Maddox is five steps behind me. So that's me dropping the ball as the guide, not having the shooter in front of me. And then I look back, and his gun's on his shoulder, and I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> this isn't looking good. And so I'm trying to back paddle, like, get your gun up. And uh, I thought the gun was going to go off and one jump and he was gone. Well, hopefully just seeing some bucks and uh, maybe his brother getting one will we'll fire him up for next year and, and they'll be back. Oh, he's there's no worry about that. He used to set up lights and shoot his bow after dark. Back when they lived around here, he'd shoot bow for three, four hours straight. It would get dark and he'd go get his dad's lights, set them up in their yard so he could keep shooting. He won't he won't give up. Yeah, no, good Good for you, though, for taking kids out. Uh, anybody that has a chance to get some young guys out in the field and get them involved, that's always a good deal for sure. Oh, absolutely. And I just like getting back to my roots of just deer hunting, you know, where yeah. it's like, fuck, like that's all you, fuck. Trophy hunting can get stressful after a while and wear on you, but pretty refreshing to and to see the enthusiasm of a younger hunter. Oh, yeah. That's always fun and see that passion of just like, oh, we had a couple stocks where we were making a move on a deer and Maddox was like, is this where the shot's going to happen? <laughs> and uh, I was like, no, I was like, we're just going to glass up here. And I can tell he was getting a little bit nervous, you know, and it's like, I can remember being that young kid. Oh yeah. That's, that's the most exciting times in your hunting career right there. Right. But we'll get him one. I'm trying to talk my sister into letting him come back this year. So we'll get our redemption. Yeah, for sure. Got a good guide. So after the shotgun season wrapped up, then South Dakota, and then you came back successful there, and then you went into muzzleloader season. Tell me how that went for you. Uh, muzzleloader season was really good. I had one hunt. I got a piece of public right by our, our shop where I work, and uh, I raced out there one time and uh, jumped a doe that I took a shot at and missed, and then I think it was the second hunt out there sat a spot that's right by the road i drive by the spot all the time take the long way home to just kind of get a feel for movement and check for tracks here and there crossing roads and there's one spot that everybody overlooks where a slough pushes 
up against this field and they kind of funnel right through there to the neighboring property. So I was probably only set up, oh, I don't know, 200 yards off the road. And I knew there was a couple bedding thickets out in the cattails there that looked looked like nothing to a lot of people. And sure enough, the closest one to the road had two does and a fawn in it. And they came by me and I shot the one doe. And, and then uh, on the last day of season, I was hunting some private land uh, that we've got. It's my it's my dad's uncle's land, so it's not like sole permission or anything like that. But I had a first ever cull buck that I actually got to pull the trigger on. It was a pretty sure as a three year old six pointer. And uh, normally when I see a buck like that, it's before a shotgun season or too early in the season. I only get one buck tag, and I never want to burn it, but. He's one of those bucks where it's like, man, I don't want him spreading those genes. But he was still a nice deer. He was, uh, I think he was 17 inches wide. Do you weigh him by chance? Yeah, he was 176, I think, 174, 176, something like that. Probably not a two-year-old then. Well, and he didn't have an ounce of fat on him. It was, you know, your post rut at that point, and he had no fat. So, I mean, that's that's pretty big for a two-year-old you know, without any fat on them. So I'm pretty sure, pretty confident as three-year-old bucks. So, so yeah, that pretty much concluded my season. And I went, uh, been out scouting a few times, not real recently, but I've got a, got a new property on my radar that I'm pretty excited about. It's, uh, I found a deadhead there. It's off of a, I'm pretty sure it's a three-year-old buck. He's uh, pretty narrow, but got a good mass, 10-pointer. And then I uh, jumped in a, a real nice buck that I think was also a three-year-old. And uh, it's a pretty promising spot. The bedding is really spread out, and that property is the thickest I know of. But I got a couple spots ready out there, and I think I got a solid game plan. So Is that public land? Yep. Well, if you can, without giving too much away, kind of what drew you to that property to begin with and uh, once you got out there what did you see that made you think this is going to be a good spot to hunt this year well the property itself it's just big enough that it can't be driven out and there's enough cattails and different structure out there like any anytime you can get a property where you can't have a group of 10 guys push the whole thing i mean that's pretty much what it takes around here to grow big deer. Um, of course, you always got guys with private land that manage and stuff like that. But uh, the main thing was there's a there's a river that kind of cuts off a certain section of that public. And um, it's a nightmare to get back there, but um, I'll do what I have to do. It's got, once I got back there, I knew right away it was going to be good because I seen how thick it was. And then once I saw, once I saw how the, I didn't see hardly any, the, the only pressure I saw on there on the public was from the private land guys crossing the border and setting up. I don't think anybody else is doing what I'm doing to get in there. And uh, there is a food plot back there and there's tracks in there late and two years in a row in December, I've bumped deer out of there and I just think, uh, especially finding that deadhead and jumping that other buck. I mean, I've jumped deer back there every time I've been back there. And it just seems like one of those spots. It's one of those spots that gives you a feeling like it just looks bucky. 
you know, and, I'm, and there's more buck sign back there than normal. But even without that, just the thickness of it and it being hard to hunt, it's like this has the, you know, what it takes for a buck to get some years on him. So, yeah, it's a good habitat and you've already spotted animals in that area. Right. And it's, it's a brand new part of a county that I've never really hunted before. But so I don't really know what the deer density is like in general, but it's a kind of a concentrated uh, uh, amount of habitat right there with some draws and so a few more rolling hills and which always means, you know, less farming because we, we've got squares around here where the entire square mile is farmed like there's not even a fence line. Yeah. So the habitat is the issue and that's one thing that this place has. So, um, my whole goal is to hunt back there without the private land guys knowing <laughs> because right now they've got the world by the balls pretty much. And all the bedding is on the public, like all of it. And they plant the food and they're not going to like, uh, they're not going to like a beast slipping in there. Put it that way. Well, if you, uh, you got to pull your stand in public in Minnesota anyways, don't you? Yep. Yeah. So hopefully they never know you're in there. Right. Well, that's the goal. That deadhead that I found, I even left it. It stunk. There's still some meat on it and whatnot. And I left it in a spot where I'm like, if anybody else is back here, they're going to grab this. And uh, I left it there for about a month. And when I went back, it was still in there. Well, that's a good sign. Yeah. So apart from that property, looking ahead to fall 2021, Obviously, it sounds like that drop time buck's going to be on your radar. What are you doing different, if anything, looking forward to this uh, coming season? Uh, so for this year, the main thing I'm going to do, I'm obviously going to have uh, some new sets for that drop time. I'm going to check on all my old ones, make sure I have all my ducks in a row there. I do have a couple uh, observation trees that I need to get into. Some of them are some really big trees that I don't know what I'm going to do as far as climbing sticks, getting a rope around them or whatever. But I got to figure those out because that's a really big part of my game. If you can set up an observation tree and see multiple bedding areas at once, that's huge versus looking at just one. But uh, we have, I don't know, we've got a few different spots that, uh, that I'm pretty excited about. I saw a lot of nice bucks last year. Um, way more than normal because we had uh, in 2018 we had a ton of corn in the field and I think that saved a ton of deer. So I've got I've got the drop tine and then that buck that I bumped at that new spot and there's a few others that I know I had enough of them last year that I know not all of them could have gotten shot. So it's just going to be relocating them and then uh, there's a few spots on one of my main public areas that. Uh, that I frequent a lot. My best bedding area got ruined by another hunter last year. Oh no. Um, I had a, I had the bachelor group out there in July and everything like it took me three, four years to get to this point and be like, okay, this is what I need to do. The bachelor group was there. And then I seen a guy in, in my, or my observation spot the next time I went in there and for the rest of the summer, those bucks were gone. And I'm like, he went in there and set a bunch of cameras or something. Yeah. And on opening day, I went in there and verified that. Found a found a salt block and a camera and all this. So there's other hiding places out there that 
I'm pretty sure some bucks are hiding in. I just got to figure out how to hunt them and dig a little bit deeper. But uh, it's getting to the point where they're so secluded or access has to be so creative that you can't just go in there on hunt day and make something happen. It's like, I need more intel. So as usual, there's more homework to do there. Yeah, as far as the hunt itself, as far as what I'm going to do different, it's just same stuff I've always been doing. Just find find the best setup. You know, I'm not a, you guys know I hunt on the ground a lot. I love being in a tree. If I can be in a tree, I will. But if I've got to make something work on the ground, got to go and figure those out, especially if i got to sneak in close. I was going to say this year should really reinforce that for you too, right? Be where be where you need to be, where the deer are. If they're uh, 50 yards from this guy's house, that's where you need to be. Yeah, absolutely. It uh, it really opened my eyes, what you mentioned, and what I kind of touched on as far as the guy screwing up that one bedding area. And I know there's more hiding spots out there. It's like any of those stones that I haven't turned over yet, it's like I got to go see what's out there. Even in, Even if they don't seem like that great, you still got to check them out and you still got to keep an open mind because uh, you and I talked a while ago about assuming things. And that's the one thing that, that basically screwed me up on this property where the drop time is, is I just assumed those bedding areas were going to be legit. Those islands, those peninsulas. And it's interesting because I can go through my scouting journals dating back to 2015 and I'll have something written in there detailing like I thought I would find more beds or I thought there would be more wear or I thought there would be more rubs. But at the same time, it's it's not simple because there still could be one there because what did I just get done telling you? Oh, the drop time lives in a spot that has no rubs. Right. right. So that that's basically the whole message is don't assume whether it's a lack of sign or whether it looks perfect on the map or whatever, you still can't really assume. You got to try and trust your gut because my gut told me those islands weren't where they were, but I just couldn't believe it. So I stuck with it for years and then just about quit hunting that area. Luckily, I decided to stick with it a little longer because it is amazing. Like I wish I could share an aerial and show everybody like what I've learned out there because it's mind blowing to me. I got a, a friend that's, that's a member of the hunting beast that I kind of, I met him at a parking lot uh, on opening weekend last year. And uh, we kind of hit it off and have even scouted together a little bit. And uh, I told him every detail about that spot and he's just like, what, you know? Yeah. And uh, Tyler, even during muzzleloader season, I had my buddy Tyler drive out the whole, all the bedding on the public. I was like, maybe we'll get lucky and that drop time will be in there. I couldn't, I couldn't hunt on the private where he bedded because the landowner's family gun hunts it, so it was bow only. So I couldn't, I couldn't try for this drop time with a gun. It was bow only. Okay. So I'm like, well, next best thing, let's drive the public out. And Tyler walked through all that stuff, and he was like, that sucked. He's like, there's hardly any rubs back there, hardly any bed. I'm like, I know. He's like, oh, that is just bizarre. And it is. I don't know why they don't like it, but they don't. Don't ever assume. Always verify, like I said before, either with trail camera or observations. 
or whatever. Or like I said in the last podcast, in-season scouting, go bust some stuff out. Yeah, I think an important point to make here is we're saying don't assume and don't overlook these areas with no rubs or no scrapes. But you had a very critical piece of information, which is you shined a big buck in this area. So don't go spinning your wheels on areas with no sign, no rubs, no scrapes if you don't have some sort of intel, right? Yeah, that that's why, like, you even saying, like, well, you shined one there. So that was a big key to that. But I've also told you about how 2014 through 2019, I never shined a shooter on that entire side of the property ever. Right? Even yeah. though I know they're there. Yeah. So it's like, there's just because you try one method, that doesn't mean, you know, because I could have said, oh, I've shined along here for years. There's nothing in there. Well, it certainly seemed that way if you were riding along with me every time I did it. But you go start walking through bedding areas and all of a sudden deer go crashing off. I mean, pretty hard to refute that, right? Right. Or especially if cameras are legal on public or if you're running them on private. I mean, cameras don't lie. So it's like you got to figure out whatever whatever is the best suited for the property you know some some work out really well for observations where i can learn way more climbing 25 foot up a tree and putting some binos in my hand than a trail camera will ever teach me and there's others that are the opposite they're just too thick observing doesn't really work that good there that's where a camera will shine so you really have to assess each property and uh find the chink in its armor, so to speak. You really got to put the work in. Like I say, I'm big on observing, especially in the field. I don't sit in the truck and observe very often. I've got a spot or two where it works, where I can see what I think I need to see. But more often than not, I'm out there. Like my 2019 buck, he was never seen from the road once. But when I went in the field, three times in a row every time i was out there he did the same thing there he is plain as day broad daylight you gotta mix it up if something's not working try something else you can't be afraid to fail that's that's the main thing don't be afraid to fail don't be afraid to get aggressive keep trying new new things until something works anyone that's having consistent success i think that's a big part of it right you've obviously demonstrated you got an open mind and you're using all the tools in the toolbox. I mean, just for this buck, you talked about sitting in observations day in preseason. You talked about running cameras. You talked about shining. And you're not getting intel every time from each one of those. You know, it's putting the pieces together and, and doing the work. There's no easy button generally for shooting a big buck on uh, public land or, or heavily pressured private or shared access. So if you want that consistent success, it's a learning curve and and put those tools in your toolbox and and use them all right yep and that yeah you we kind of touched on that on the last podcast too like you say in ground hunting is a tool that you want in your toolbox well that's exactly a good way to look at it is having a toolbox and if you're a mechanic the more tools you have the more things you can do no different with hunting if you're one-dimensional you're going to be missing out on all kinds of stuff that goes for scouting, hunting, everything. Or if you're scared to take an out of state trip, you just got to do it. I like to think of it as investing too. Every time you sacrifice 
a day to hunt a property that you already know or an area that you already know or have had success in the past to go to a new area you're you're investing in the future because maybe this new place is the best place you've ever hunted and now instead of five great spots you got six or instead of nine you got ten whatever the case absolutely i completely agree with that and that's kind of what my mindset is too is you never know when you find that next best thing so that's why i kind of it's that finding that balance when it comes to scouting and like how many properties should you hunt and scout it's about finding that balance of you need to know the spots that you hunt really well because you need to know what you're looking at and you need to know what to look for just like the spot behind this farmer's house if i if i go in there scouting and i think oh i you know i need to see some rubs back here it ain't gonna happen there's no there was no new ones this year one new one and like a couple old ones so it's like that's not going to tip anybody off so that's where knowing tracks is so important but you always need to keep broadening your horizons to try and trim the fat so to speak get rid of those bedding areas that don't really produce get rid of the properties that don't produce and uh, yeah it, it takes it takes a lot of time because properties can hunt so differently like I say, that right by that farmer's house, there's no buck sign. There's other spots that you can go where the bedding areas are just ripped up. So that's, uh, and all it takes is one aggressive buck to do something like that. I've, I've seen it happen. I hunted one that got killed the year before I hunted him and uh, none of that sign showed up. So like we said in the last podcast, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. You just got to keep an open mind and, uh, find that balance and find what works for you and just keep trying new things and tweaking to uh, kind of find your own recipe for success. I actually started a thread on the beast years ago. It was titled similar to that, like finding your own recipe for success, because if you try to be somebody else, your thought process is going to be clouded, right? If you try and hunt just like Dan, or if you try and, be like the adrenaline boys and hide behind a decoy. I'm not saying I wouldn't do that, but the situation would call for it. Yeah, different tactics for different properties. And and I think it's, in a way, people develop their own style. I mean, yeah, a lot of guys are hunting out of tree stands or from the ground or whatever, but everyone's kind of has their, their niche tactics or their niche type areas they look for and, and find out what works for you and when you have success repeat those things and when you don't have success like you said trim the fat right i do think uh it's good to try and master one thing at a time or especially if you've got a property and you know that there's big deer there put a lot of time into it don't you don't want to i mean it takes a lot of time like i said i hunted the the spot where i the drop time lives i hunted there for five years and almost quit and now all of a sudden it's an awesome spot for me <laughs> i tried a lot of different things i hunted every bedding area that's out there i can promise you that and i overlooked one little thing it was my pride like i say i wanted to shoot one on public so i kind of ignored ignored that sliver of private that i had access to and uh lo and behold that's where they were or at least that's where this one was last year. It's funny when you mentioned the, the guy just only going to the shop, no dog. 
I mean, when you think about it, right, that's probably, if that's public right next to that, that probably is the least pressured area in that section. Right. But I know, I, I think I said it on the last podcast, I never see people back there. Like, it's fr- so frustrating. Like, I don't, I still to this day, don't understand why those deer don't like to bed back there. Like, you'll see does, little bucks. I got strung along for years. <laughs> And sometimes that is what it takes, though. It's like if you know, if you're spreading yourself out, trying different tactics, trying different times of the year, this and that, and you know there's a big one there, I mean, you do have to keep at it to a certain extent. But like I say, I got to the point where it was like five years, and I, it was four or five years, and I'd never seen a shooter during season period. And it's like, at that point, I was like, I don't care how I used to feel about this property. It's like, I need, I need to feel good about where I'm hunting. Right. Yeah. I have an entirely different mindset. If I'm excited to hunt something versus, well, I suppose I'll go back here and beat my head against a tree trunk for another hunt because they're here somewhere. It's like, my plan was to take a couple year break from it and then like, go try again. Cause I knew there were some big ones around there. It just was super frustrating because it's so low pressure. I couldn't cross anything off the list. At least if there were some other people out there, I'd be like, well, I know they're not there and there, but it was just me. Yeah. That's a good point. Talking about areas that you have confidence in and the more I hunt or the more success that I've had, I find myself having a really hard time, like sticking with an area. If I'm not confident in it, I get really antsy. And I either want to go pound the ground and, and find a, a better area or just something something else that's working because my tolerance these days is real low for, for like a mediocre area. For me personally, I typically only pick stuff as far as properties that I'm confident in because I have a lot to choose from. I cast a really big net and I hunt all over western Minnesota. So it's like, I don't, I don't need to hunt a spot where I'm like, I don't really know what to think of this. You know, if I could run cameras in a spot like that, I'd throw a camera up there for a year and let that tell me what's going on. But I got enough spots. Like I got so many spots that I've wanted to hunt for years, but I just don't have time to get to them that I do have confidence in. So I would say for myself regarding like questioning something, that's way more along the lines of a bedding area. Like, I don't know if I should sit this, is, is this worth a sit or not? You know, which anymore, I try and use the sign, hot sign to tell me where to go. But I do, I do like sitting a bedding area that I really don't know what to think of it. Or even an observation stand in a corner of a property where it's like, I know there's big bucks here. I think this corner is kind of worthless, but I'm not sure. I will absolutely sit a spot like that because that leads to confidence because that way you can say I've sat there, you know, a couple times and I never see squat. I've seen a couple of those get out of that thicket and I saw a small buck in that fence line and that was it, you know? So it's like, this is where they are. So to me, that's what gives me confidence of knowing the property extremely intimately. But yeah, I don't, I don't have the problem of, I don't know if I should hunt this property or not. I can usually get a real good feel for if it's going to be good or not just by the aerial and 
once in a while I am disappointed when I go into a spot. It's just like, man, that just nothing really jumped out at me. I would say maybe one in four, I'll have that happen. And usually I don't go back, but I always got, I always have a pin on them, an onyx. So I'm kind of an opportunist when it comes to scouting. So once in a while, if I find myself in an area and I have a free hour, I might just go run out there just because it puts me in a good mood to go stretch my legs and go scout. So maybe I'll go check out one of those properties that I didn't really know what to think of when I got that free hour. Yeah. <laughs> Something you said, I think uh, if a newer guy's listening, just getting started, it, it can be kind of discouraging, but it's the truth. You talked about sitting in a corner of a property several times, not seeing anything, writing it off. And unfortunately, I think, at least for me, the way I found some of my best spots is trial and error. Like you said, you know there's a big buck in the area, so you sit this spot, it's junk. You sit another spot, that spot's junk. Sooner or later, just like the property by the the house this year, you find that sweet spot if you keep moving and you know there's a big buck in there. So that's a good lesson, I think. Unfortunately, a lot of times there's no way to get down that learning curve any faster than just putting the time in. That's exactly what it is, is putting the time in. If you got a guy that, oh, okay, I, I like to go scouting once every couple of weeks and I like to just walk a little bit and stretch my legs, that's one thing. But if you've got a guy that, especially these younger guys that are single, I, I wish I knew about beast tactics when I was younger. I would have been out there all summer. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you got you to gotta put the time in and then you got to answer those questions. I was thinking you you were talking earlier and I I was thinking to myself one thing that I do a lot is uh I answer my questions. However that may be no matter what the question is no matter how I try and answer it I try and answer it because it drives me nuts if I have to sit and wonder like oh I wonder if this property is good or I wonder if this bedding area is good or I wonder you know maybe I'm hunting this with the wrong wind or or whatever my goal is learning period yeah and another thing that is quite interesting is when i first joined the beast and people were talking about observation sits i that i even have some comments on there i think that i said something about yeah but they'll never you know around here they're so nomadic you know they're not going to be on a pattern good enough it's like observations kind of kind of a waste of time for to a certain extent I have completely 180 on that. Not that I think their movement is that consistent, but just the simple fact that if you just throw sits at stuff, they're mostly going to be low odds. I did that. So it's like I used to have to talk myself into an observation sit. Now I have to talk myself into a kill sit. Do I want to go bury myself in this area? often enough a ground blind where I can't see squat except for what comes down this trail or two. That's all I'm going to learn. You know, it's like, do I want to waste the potential of learning something major somewhere else? You know, it's like, I want to know he's home. If I watch him on observation or if I see those tracks coming on those trails, I'm all about it. But if it's like, Oh, I really don't know what to think. Yeah. There's deer here. The trails look good. Yeah. There's some buck sign. But it's like, I didn't see any mature buck sign. Those are the times where I'm like, man, I'd just rather go and sit in an observation stand and see what I can find out. Let me ask you the question like this, because uh, what you're saying is is really similar to how I feel. I almost feel like there's a threshold these days where 
I need to gather X amount of information. And until I get that much information and get to that threshold, I don't feel like I want to go in there and sit to hunt. It's like I need to scout and get all these pieces that I think I need to have a a real good chance of when I do go in there of making it happen. You're saying that you need, like, you have a high threshold of what you need to see before you'll go in? Right. Like you said, observation, tracks, camera, whatever it is, you know, I think yeah. I think a big part of that reason is is because you know, especially early season, late season when they're it seems like more sensitive to pressure. You know, in the rut you might who knows what in a certain spot you might get four different bucks passed in a day or two. But early season and late season it's like more calculated and you need to make sure you got all your ducks in a row when you get in there. Right. That was like two years ago when I was I shot my buck opening day and then all I had was doe tags so i didn't want to just oh this will work oh this spot will work and just sit wherever i kept looking until i could find something like okay like this looks like it's lights out and uh i killed i think it took me three sits but i had i had a doe come in that got away and i had to pass the yearling box i like i was covered up in deer the other two hunts I shouldn't say covered up, but I had encounters the other two hunts. And then on my third hunt, I killed. Yeah. And that was a repeated sit. Like, yeah, if you're just looking for does, keep, uh, or even if it's bucks and you're rut hunting, if you, if you're on deer and they're showing up, keep going, keep going till they're not, then move on. No, I couldn't, couldn't agree more on that. I know we've mentioned that several times, but this seems like a pretty logical place to wrap it up. So Anything else? Final uh, parting words, Ryan? No, not much. Just uh, looking forward to this really cold weather to pass by us and get some melting snow so I can get to my favorite time of year. Yeah, I know. Can't wait to get out and scout and uh, shed hunt in Montana. You actually find sheds on Lake Michigan, so that's fun. Right. Yeah, I don't. If I find two sheds in a year, that's about it. Yeah, that was that was I think my historical best year in Michigan. I found two uh on one property in the same day and i think that was all i found that year so a little different out here right all right hey thanks again for coming on i'm sure you'll be a a regular guest and we're buddies and like talking tactics with you i think we have a lot of the same ideas so it's good to touch base and and get you on the line see how things are going yeah man anytime i enjoy it i uh i can talk to you all day so um anytime you want to have me i'll come on and i appreciate you having me on here it's a lot of fun all right well hopefully maybe we can get you on before the season opens up uh, especially if you're getting some intel on the drop time so we'll have to we'll have to keep tabs on that or or maybe you'll keep that under wraps and and um, hopefully there'll be a, a podcast where you get them tagged this year yeah that's the goal all right buddy we'll catch you later all right later Thank you.